This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Often during election season, we've done a program not about the then-current electoral races, but about simply seeking more civility in political discourse and maybe reducing the extreme polarization between the sides in our political conversations. Despite our efforts, it's clearly still a problem. So today, three more guests who will touch on just a few of the many reasons political polarization continues. And we'll hear about just a few ideas and programs that could close the gap even a little bit. Ideas that might just lessen political polarization at your dinner table, in your neighborhood, or around the country. We'll meet Jesse Fields, a New York State advocate for open primaries. Robbie Iyer from California, who helps manage the civilpolitics.org website. But first, Rob Carwath with the Speak Your Peace program in Duluth, Minnesota, talking with our Suzanne Kreider. Well, I think what we see in our country and maybe even around the world these days is we, we are becoming polarized, at least in some high-profile uh, segments and, and ways. Tom Friedman from the New York, New York Times wrote a wonderful call that said, the pace of change is being driven by technology, and technology is driving change so quickly that we're struggling to keep up. And it's that change that is causing people to feel uncomfortable. And you see it in a political system that is, um, the old solutions aren't working like they used to. And we're becoming polarized because we're frustrated. We're, we're saying, well, you're the problem, or those other people are the problem, or it's not this community that's the problem, it's the place next door. And we're, we're, we tend to have a, uh, you know, go after the other guy um, approach when we get frustrated, or at least sometime we do. I think you're seeing it, though, in, around the world. Speak Your Peace says if we can do the exact opposite and come together, afford each other those basic human needs and treat each other right, we can work together to find solutions. And uh, we can keep up better with this escalating pace of change that's been so destabilizing for, for all of us. Rob Carwath, what is Speak Your Peace? Speak Your Peace is a program that was developed in Duluth and Superior, uh, Duluth, Minnesota, Superior, Wisconsin. It is a program to build community and civic engagement. And we created it 13 years ago in our mid-sized community in the northern part of the United States because we realized we had a problem with um, community and civic engagement. We had some anecdotal evidence as well as some um, hard factual data that showed people were disengaging in our community and we knew that that was not a strength we were not going to solve the problems that were in front of us uh, right immediately at that point or the issues of the future or seize the opportunities of the future if we had people dropping out and wisely the duluth superior area community foundation engaged a group of people and they came up with a nine-step program that um, works to build civility as a critical tool to getting people engaged. Tell us, Rob, about a few of those um, Speak Your Peace civility tools. Well, it's it really, um, it, the centerpiece of the program is, is nine tenets. And they are, I often like to say they are things that we learned in kindergarten and first grade, or we should have. I think most of us did. They are things like listen, apologize, pay attention, uh, if you're going to criticize, make the criticism constructive and uh, really 
nine tenets that, that say, I will, and that's an important part of it. It's I will. It's not, I'm going to make you do these things, but I will apologize when needed. I will pay attention. I will do what it takes to engage in healthy conversation with other people in community. And I expect that those will be granted to me too. And sometimes when I present or, or show people speak your piece or talk about it, they say, gosh, is this all there is? You know, where are the trained facilitators? And I tell them that the program was deliberately made simple so any community could use these tools. And truly, these are the simple, basic human needs that all of us want and, and truly need. Uh, and when we get them, we're willing to engage and we'll come back again, even if we don't win the day. But when we aren't treated with those measures of civility, we're not as likely to come back. And we may end up saying, I've had enough of the circus. Okay, so we can work together, but how would that actually work? Like, let's say, how would Speak Your Peace work, like at a family dinner or like a neighborhood, or how would it work? Well, let me give you an example of how it worked in Duluth and Superior. Thirteen years ago, the biggest issue that was driving us apart and causing us to, you know, set upon each other, if you will, uh, was um, employee health care costs that were bankrupting our city. Uh, we showed up on the front page of the New York Times. Our mayor was was there on the Sunday front page one, one day. And we were one of many communities nationwide that were dealing with this problem because of growing health care costs and uh, contracts that had been afforded to city workers and retirees. It was simply driving us to the verge of bankruptcy. And you know, here in northern Minnesota, that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing anywhere, but we, we were very frustrated and upset by that. And it was causing problems. People weren't willing to invest in a city that was close to the technically bankrupt. And so we started accusing each other of, you know, you're the problem. We had a new mayor that was elected, and he and the city council began to bring these warring factions together by saying, look, let's reset. Let's realize that Truth be told, these are deeper problems than either your creation or my creation. We all know not too far deep down that it's not just as simple as that. And grudgingly at first, but increasingly together, we sat down and had conversations and difficult conversations like, you know, contracts that had no raises and closing community centers. It wasn't as if it speak your peace meant we could just walk away and not have any difficult decisions, but we were able to make difficult decisions together. And when we had to close some community centers, the YMCA stepped in and said, well, we'll run some of those for you. We can pick up a few of those. We found solutions together. And within the space of about two years, we had largely fixed our, our employee health care costs that were almost bankrupting our city. It's not that we don't have problems today here in, in uh, scenic Duluth, Minnesota, but uh, we have gotten so much better at sitting down and working together to resolve them that we have seen people investing in our city. We have seen an influx of residents especially young people, it's the exact opposite of where we were 13 years ago when people were disengaging and in some cases moving away because it wasn't working for them. Rob, at the nine steps, is there one that's usually forgotten or one you really like that makes a big impact? One of the steps says, uh, be agreeable. And I think when people see that, they often think, well, that must just mean being nice. You know, get along, go along, get along. Uh, or in Minnesota, it's, you know, that must mean be Minnesota nice, which if you know Minnesota doesn't mean nice, it means passive aggressive. 
be agreeable does not mean that at all. Be agreeable means be open to compromise. So the example I like to give is uh, a, a couple of uh, friends have decided to go out to dinner, a group of friends, and one of the friends uh, just decides he's going to stand apart and, and none of the restaurants that are offered as options are, are good enough. And that's not being agreeable. That's standing apart and being disagreeable. Be agreeable just means be open to compromise and be open to solution. And uh, I think we forget about that one as well sometimes. Rob Carwath, there's a flyer for a Speak Your Peace training that says, listening is not a weak strategy. How come? Well, listening is, uh, I, I tend to think listening has become a bit of a lost uh, art. And and it's looked upon as as a weak strategy. Well, if I'm not out there, you know, constantly telling you why I'm right, and I guess by association why you're wrong, then I'm somehow not a good leader, or I'm not a vigorous advocate. Uh, I don't think we've had great role models out of Washington, D.C., and our state capitals, and many aspects of our society uh, when it comes to listening. But unless we really focus on listening, we really are missing 50% of the opportunity for a solution. Um, I work with a small community in northwestern Wisconsin, smallest community I've worked with, um, year-round residents, about 200 people. And these are people who are even related to each other. And they would say things like, I don't need to listen to him because I know what he's going to say before he even opens his mouth. I've been I've known him for 30 years, and his mother said the same thing before him. And when they finally stopped doing that and started listening, they actually found solutions to a very difficult community problem related to drug and alcohol use. Um, and I think they were a little surprised. So, you know, it takes strength to be a good listener, to hold your tongue and speak your piece. Um, you know, the, the second tenet says, after pay attention, listen. How does that work, though? I'm listening, so how do I come up with the solution? Aren't I angry because you're different from me? Well, and you might be, but um, when you afford the other person the opportunity to speak his or her piece, um, you are doing as much to enhance the dynamic of that relationship as you are to really listening. And you know what? You might actually hear something you hadn't heard before. Uh, I think a lot of us in our busy lives, driven by that technology again, are not listening as well as we maybe even used to. We're, we just haven't afforded ourselves the time to listen. And we miss, we miss opportunities to meet in the middle, if you will. Or, I'm, you know, I can live with that. When we're constantly saying the other side is 100% wrong and we're 100% right, it really doesn't create any land in the middle for us to compromise on. And it's those compromises that begin to form the basis of, you know, problem solving and relationship building that helps with the next issue or the next challenge or the next opportunity. I mean, Washington, unfortunately, is a classic example of that where we can't come together on anything and people are frustrated. Rob, let me give you an example. Okay, I'm in some kind of meeting but one of the tenets is apologize or criticize constructively. Now, what do I do 
if I see someone who isn't doing that, they're not apologizing, they're criticizing very cruelly, what do I do? One of the things we do with Speak Your Peace in group dynamics or that community building is we explain the importance of it. And we get everybody to buy into the fact that, you know, I want this for myself. You want it for yourself. We all agree that this is a... Very rarely do I get people who say, I don't believe in those nine tenets and those basic human needs. And so I think before that meeting starts or in the work with that group, what would be important to do is is get everyone to agree that these are our ground rules. And that was actually the first step we took in Duluth and Superior. We had units of local government that said, we adopt this as part of our governing practice. And so when that happens, and I will say it will happen, uh, I'll step out of line, you'll step out of line. We uh, encourage people to gently remind um, uh, themselves and their colleagues that we've agreed to speak your piece. Remember, we agreed that if we were going to criticize, we were going to do it constructively. What I just heard from you, I think, doesn't quite meet the standards. Let's reset. Do we agree that that's important? And usually you can get back on track. If it's like uh, stuff we learned in kindergarten, how come people don't do it? Um, speak your piece is something we learned in kindergarten or first grade if we were fortunate, and I think most of us were, but we forget those lessons. We get caught up in the day-to-day of our job, our community uh, that we're living in, our issues that we're passionate about, uh, right? We feel completely passionate about them, and we don't understand sometimes why people don't see uh, the world or the situation the same way we do. And we don't have the greatest examples. Um, like I mentioned before, I think our, our our political and government leaders have shown us the exact opposite. You know, it's all about how we're right all the time and the other side's wrong all the time. And that's, uh, you know, antithetical to speak your piece. Yeah, but shouldn't we always get what we want? I think that that's what, that's a normal human you know, tendency is I should get what I want. It is. Um, but if we really want progress and we want to come to something other than, uh, you know, just glowering at each other across the table with our arms crossed, we have to work together. And that usually, almost always means compromise and relationship building. I think what's disappointing in so many ways when we look out across the political landscape is we see that, you know, the old um, relationships that used to be built across partisan lines aren't there at all in in some cases. And it's particularly the case in Washington um, where lawmakers used to, at the end of the session or at the end of the day, be able to get together and and work out a a compromise that they could um, each see value in. They don't even talk. And that's... um, uh, when we see those lessons, we we tend to say, well, that must be how the game is played. I, I've seen young leaders that have gone through Speak Your Peace training who have said, gosh, we didn't think that's what leadership and, and uh, you know political office was all about. It was about constantly pushing our agenda and not ever compromising or listening to the other side. Hmm. So, Rob Carworth, I think of Minnesota as being pretty liberal, and I'm curious if Speak Your Peace works because it's in a liberal area. Well, it's. Um, I think you're probably right. Politically, we, like many parts of the country, and particularly in northern Minnesota, are um, maybe not as... Um, uh, 
apt to be seen in our traditional ways politically. We we are a changing uh, state and and a changing part of the state is is up in the northern portion. But you know, speak your piece can um, I think exist anywhere, and it especially can work when people have become frustrated. They're seeing that the um, constant fighting and, and arguing with each other have produced no progress. And either they or their constituents uh, or the community as a whole are, have become frustrated. We're not getting the problem fixed. We're not seizing opportunities. And that's really where we were in in Duluth, Minnesota 13 years ago. We were tired of fighting with each other. And whether you're in a liberal or a conservative or a mixed area, I think when you, you find yourself there, you, you, you say at some point we have to, something's got to give. And uh, refreshingly, speak your piece is a simple and basic human way of getting the problems fixed. You mentioned it was created in Duluth, Minnesota. Is it used elsewhere in the country, Speak Your Peace? Speak Your Peace has been uh, used uh, across the country and, and around the world. It's been translated into several different languages. Uh, it's been picked up by communities from California to Florida, uh, from Minnesota to Texas. Uh, one of the valuable uh things that I get to do for the Community Foundation is I get to bring this program to to different communities across the country. And um, it's been even more popular in recent years than uh, we've seen early on. What do you want to repeat about reducing polarization through Speak Your Peace? Well, I think Speak Your Peace is needed maybe now more than it has ever been needed. It has worked at every level of uh, community, every size, every geography. We have not worked with a community that says, you know, this really didn't take care of what our needs were. Thank you, but I mean, it has worked in all of the places where it has been. Uh, and we don't go into communities and say, we've got your solution. We say we don't even in some cases truly know your issues as we certainly don't know them as well as you know them. What we do bring a value is a set of tools or a toolkit, if you will, that will help you build solutions yourself. It's not about us coming in and with the magic elixir. We come in with tools and say, you can use these tools to fix your problems. And communities themselves go about doing it. And that's probably one of the best parts of Speak Your Peace. Much more with Rob Carwath and Duluth, Minnesota's Speak Your Peace program at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear Suzanne's complete interview with him, talking about ways to talk to each other about difficult topics like politics. Next, Ravi Iyer in Los Angeles, and he's one of the academics behind the civilpolitics.org website. After this break on Peace Talks Radio.
This is Peace Talks Radio, online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls with Suzanne Kreider, and today we're talking with people who have ideas about reducing political polarization, improving civility in our political discourse. Next, it's Ravi Iyer in Los Angeles, one of the academics behind the civilpolitics.org website. Iyer is a social psychologist PhD from USC. The nonprofit's stated mission is to serve groups and individuals who are trying to bridge moral divisions by connecting them with scientific research that helps them understand those divisions and explore ways to connect peacefully and benefit society. He's studied, for example, the emotion of disgust and how politicians use it to reach voters and divide voters into intractable camps. He talked with Suzanne Kreider. Dr. Iyer, you've written about how a disgust reaction is wired in us. Tell us more about how disgust is part of the political polarization process. Yeah, disgust is one of the moral emotions that uh, we've evolved that helps us cooperate as a species. And, you know, human beings are kind of unique in the fact that we gather in these groups of hundreds of thousands of people. And, you know, what allows us to do that are our emotions that disgust, anger, uh, that allow us to understand other people's social behavior and react appropriately to them. So disgust is kind of normal. Yeah, it's, it's ingrained in us, and it's what has allowed us to outcompete other species. Without, without disgust and all these other emotions, you know, we, we, we might be uh, banding together in groups of 10 or 15 instead of groups of hundreds of thousands uh, that have you know, kind of taken over the planet. Well, how does disgust relate to political polarization? So you can think of political polarization as, you know, the ultimate team sport. So, you know, you see people who are very similar to each other in the sporting context fighting over things that are really arbitrary, you know, whether they like the Yankees or the Red Sox. Um, You know, you see people who are, you know, not that different from each other fighting in the political realm uh, as well. And so, you know, human beings are wired to band together in groups, using these moral emotions to bind us together, and then compete against other groups that are on the opposite team. And so, you know, in some ways, political polarization is, isn't that different than sports polarization. Or in, in psychology research, we bring people into labs and we just arbitrarily assign them to teams and we see the same kinds of polarization. Yeah. Well, if it's normal, it seems like it's getting worse. Isn't it like increasing? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think one thing that's happening is that the political parties and the candidates are somewhat hijacking. You know, they understand that this works. They, are, they understand, whether it's explicitly or implicitly, that human beings are wired to compete. And so we've gotten into this cycle where everything's a competition. We're worried less about policy and creating the best, uh, you know, the best economy and the best education. And we're more, more worried about who's going to win the election. And we're constantly worried about who's going to win the election. The election cycle appears to never end. And so when we're in this state of constant competition, you know, you naturally get increasing polarization. Ravi, our, your website, civilpolitics.org, promotes two different research-based recommendations on reducing political polarization. What are those? Uh, so the two recommendations are, one, focus on relationships, and two, focus on cooperative situations and not competitive situations. So uh, for the latter, you know, I, uh, you, know you, you can think about how competition breeds animosity in many groups, right? It can be, it breeds animosity in groups in the labs. And we bring people in the lab and we, we divide them into arbitrary groups. We can easily create um, animosity between them if we create a competition between them. And we can easily create friendship between them if we have them cooperate on common goals. Our second recommendation is about relationships. 
you know, I think the, the thing that people often believe to be the path towards, um, you know, getting together and, and cooperating in terms of policy is to f make a rational argument. So they believe that if they come up with the right set of facts, they can come up with some way that they make trade-offs where people will, will come up with, with uh, the right policy that, you know, group A and group B both win. Um, what we find is that it's not about rationality. It's not about figuring out some sort of win-win situation. It's about finding a way that you can actually bridge the emotional divide between another person. If emotion is the thing that causes the animosity between groups, emotion is also the thing that can bring groups together. So once you believe that the other person you know, sitting across from you in a negotiation is a good person and you actually like that person, then the, the cooperation in terms of policy or in terms of coming up with some sort of compromise naturally follows. Um, if you start from a place where you don't like the other person or you got your, your emotions are working against you, then no matter what you know, rational reason you have to cooperate, um, it often doesn't work out. So what do you do in that situation? Well, so I think you have to work on the relationship. So if you realize that, if you understand that human beings are social creatures first and rational creatures second, then you work on the social part first. You work on the relationships. So a lot of the groups that we've worked with, um, you know, community groups, groups of, uh, who bring together across political, you know, specific political divisions, um, they work on the relationships first. And then, you know, the compromise is easy. Uh, when, you know, if you dislike the other person, compromise is really hard. I, I, you know, I, I guess I'd ask you, when was the last time that you ever had a debate with someone and they were convinced by some, you know, amazingly smart, rational argument that you made, right? Like people, human beings are really good at wiggling out of rational arguments. It's hard to convince someone with the sheer force of argument. Um, but when you're, when they like you and they want, you know, they care about your uh, side of, of, of the, the negotiation, then, then, you know, great things are possible. When you say work on relationships, what are a couple ways you can do that? Well, just spending time with people is, is, you know, an easy way. Maybe, you know, don't focus on the thing that you disagree about, but focus on the things you do agree about, right? You know, so, you know, focusing on uh, we all love our kids or, you know, we all love uh, the local sports team. So make small talk. Learn, get to know people in a way that's not about whatever it is you're having a conflict about. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of research that just says that familiarity breeds liking. So just knowing someone makes you like them more and having exposure to them makes you like them more. Um, you, can, you can be more intentional about it if you want to. There's, there's exercises that people do where, you know, if knowing someone makes you like them more, then knowing them deeply makes you like them even more still. So you can intentionally do things where you disclose, you know, sort of more personal things to another person. Um, and that's been found to increase uh, relationship bonding as well. Can you tell another story about seeing all the research results work out, like in the real world? So something from your experience that has given you hope about reducing political polarization. Yeah, we've uh, we work with a number of partner organizations at, uh, and so we, and when we work with them, we don't work on you know let's solve political polarization for everyone in the world. We work on solving political polarization uh, for a specific group of people. Um, and so groups like Living Room Conversations and the Village Square, um, we, with, with those groups, we've, we've convened lots of, of you know, small groups that disagree on issues. And we will ask them questions about you know, how they feel about the issues before and how they feel about the issues after. And oftentimes, you don't find that people end up 
agreeing more with the other side afterwards. So we don't, we don't actually see people's attitudes change, but we actually do see is that people's opinions about the other side change. They're much more willing to compromise with the other side. They don't see them as bad people. They still believe what they believe, but they, but they don't think that the other side is out to get them. They understand them better. Um, so that's at the, at the local level. And then, you know, we increasingly, we've been working with organizations that are bringing together people who are leaders around a specific issue. So you can imagine, uh, you know, religious leaders and people who uh, believe deeply in um, in gay rights, right? And and so, you know, these are all good people who, when they get to know each other, they recognize that the other side is are people of good faith, who you know believe in their cause and, and have legitimate issues, and they tell stories about you know what it was like to um, you know shop for a wedding ring and to be denied service, right? And, and and those stories affect people. And I don't think change happens at the let's solve polarization at the societal level, but change can absolutely happen at the individual level where someone who once held an opinion that, you know, someone who sells rings should be free to serve whoever they like, they may still believe that, but they at least see the other side of it when they hear the story of how it's affected somebody who was denied service. So even if they're not changing, they're listening, they're being empathetic, you feel that's reducing polarization. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of what people talk about in political science circles is affective polarization. So, you know, once upon a time, it was considered taboo to marry someone of the opposite race. And now that's less so, but what's actually less taboo uh, is, is to be biased against people of the opposite ideology, right? You can say to someone, I don't want my daughter to marry a Republican, or, or I don't want my daughter to marry a Democrat, and people won't really look at you funny. They'll be like, that's reasonable, you know, that's, that's like the, a bias that we think is okay. And it's that kind of affective polarization that gets in the way of people sort of understanding each other and, and compromising across the aisle. You may not change their opinion. People can still be Democrats and Republicans and believe in the policies that they believe. But when you bridge that affective divide, then compromise is possible. And you're hopeful it's going to even go deeper into the political parties and their polarization. Yeah, I mean, and, and you can, you know, look at history, look at the stories that are told about, you know, the relationships between Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill you know, uh, once upon a time, everyone in Washington used to live in Washington. And, and so they used to socialize together. Now, increasingly, politicians go to Washington and they go back to the districts. And a lot of people have pointed out that a lot more got done back in the day when everybody knew each other. So, it, you know, there's research to back this up, but there's also a lot of, of history to back this up, that when, when people know each other, when politicians know each other, they get more done. Yeah. So you're not that freaked out about the polarization of political parties. Oh, I'm absolutely freaked out about it. That, that's, you are. It is certainly a problem. I'm just, I just believe there is a solution that exists now. But but the forces that are you know pulling us to polarization are are strong forces. I mean, it it works when politicians try to divide us and in, in, into teams and and sort of activate that sort of competitive spirit and and fan that animosity. I mean, that they're tapping into sort of primal emotions that human beings are going to respond to. So polarization works. Um, and if we don't do things to fight against that polarization, then, you know, it's likely to get worse. So I'm absolutely freaked out about it. Uh, I think there are solutions that people can do to, to fight against it. Um, but it's certainly a problem. You've also studied morals. How do morals tend to differ in conservatives versus liberals? 
So liberals tend to have a, a slightly narrower set of moral concerns. So they're, they're more concerned about rights and, and not hurting other people. Conservatives have those concerns, but we find that they also have these other concerns. And this is on average. Not every conservative is like this. Not every liberal is like this. Um, but you know, on average, conservatives tend to also be concerned about things like hierarchy and fitting in with a group and uh, not doing anything that's uh, unnatural or impure. And so you, you see these that, that played out in terms of conservatives tending to care more about things like national security and patriotism and religion and you know paying deference to sort of like the rightful place in society. So and, and we don't see this just in the United States, we see this across cultures. So there's you know there are these sort of uh, you know we call weird people um, and that means you know western educated industrial uh, individuals who who have this sort of liberal slant where they're not as embedded in a societal context and so they have these sort of different set of morals. But actually most people around the world tend to be more conservative in, in, in the sort of the U.S. context. They tend to be more concerned about fitting in with their society and, and wanting to, to believe in these sort of binding moral concerns. And so what do morals have to do with the polarization or competition you've talked about? Well, so I think a lot of times liberals and conservatives talk past each other. So if, you know, if liberals believe that, you know, everything is about not hurting other people and, and, and you know, fairness and, and rights, then they might miss out on the concerns that conservatives have. They might not see them as legitimate or they might not be able to empathize with them. And so when a conservative says something about patriotism, a liberal might just see that as, you know, code for racism or code for something that, you know, they, they might not legitimize it and they might not be able to empathize with it in a way that you know, they would with something that they felt more naturally. Doctor, are, are disgusts and worlds biological or can we change them? So everything is some combination of nature and nurture. So I think every, you know, if you were to look at any personality trait or, um, or, or physical trait, you know, there's, there's some amount of heritability and there's some amount of uh, nature or nurture involved in how you're, you're brought up. Um, so disgust is certainly both of those things. There's, there's definitely some hered hereditary component, but, you know, there's also definitely some amount of like, you know, how you're grown up, how you grow up and what you've, you've, uh, you, you know, sort of learn a reaction to. I'm surprised you're saying that people are social first than rational. I think of myself as more rational and I think of a lot of people as more rational. They just don't care about being social. Is it, but that's not true. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I think uh, the, you know, this isn't just our research group, but there's, you know, I think that the weight of evidence of, of, you know, all psychological research is, is really focused on, you know, the, the predictably irrational human, you know, and, and all the ways that human beings are, you know, irrational. And, it, and it's easy for us to think of ourselves as rational because we, we sort of, you know, when we're thinking about these kinds of issues, we're kind of putting on a rational hat anyway. Um, but you think about all the things you're able to do that are not don't involve rationality. Things like you know navigating social relationships, you know just driving your car in the morning. You're not you don't you're not actively thinking about all the things that you, you know th that are out there on the road. A lot of those things are just gut reactions. And so you know your your um, emotional part of your brain, the intuitive part of your brain, is actually really powerful. Um, another way to think about it would be like. Um, um, you know, think about a person who is very rational, but has very little social ability, right? And so that's kind of what we think of as, as a disorder almost, right? So, that's, so that would be sort of someone who's higher on the, on the autism spectrum. Um, whereas if there's someone who's very social and maybe isn't quite as rational, you know, that person honestly t tends to fit in more in society. So it's a lot easier to function in society as a social person than it is as a completely rational person. 
And so this whole idea of the candidates know that discuss works or the parties know discuss works. So that drives up the polarization. So is there anything that can be done about the parties or the candidates reducing polarization? So, you know, just like emotions can lead us to do terrible things to other groups and other people and to think terrible things about other people, emotions can lead us to do great things for other people and to help other people as well, right? You know, emotions can lead us to, to genocide and emotions can lead us to, uh, you know, to, to saving people across, you know, sending money and, and food across the earth to people who we really have no connection to. So, Yes, the politicians, I don't think it's necessarily explicit, understand how to manipulate people's emotions. In some cases, it may be explicit. In some cases, they just may be, you know, sort of have a more intuitive understanding of that. But, you know, we can we can also use our emotions to our advantage. And so, you know, insofar as we can start to empathize with people from the other side. Uh, you saw a lot of that, you know, around the uh, the shootings in Dallas, right? You saw a lot of people who were not necessarily, you know, inclined to support law and order and, and the police empathizing with people who had suffered a tragedy and so and and you so and you saw people coming together about look you know the the emotions that a police officer's wife feels when they send their husband out in the in the morning are the same as the emotions that um you know a teenager of a young black boy feels when they send them out they you know every we can all empathize around common experiences and that that emotional ability to empathize can bring us together in the same way as politicians can use it to pull us apart and so I know you're not like a specialist in like neighborhoods and families, but how could we use the empathy if we're like at a family dinner or in the neighborhood to reduce polarization? So, I mean, you know, I, I, I bring it back to relationships first. So uh, rather than trying to convince someone of why they might, you know, if there's someone, if you're your parents or someone you, you love across the dinner table does not agree with you on a political issue, don't try to convince them about the, the thing that they disagree with you about, right? That will just, you know, you, you, pro, you, know, you might have had experience with this and uh, that usually leads to people going back into their corners and, and you know, sort of an erosion of relationships and, and sort of less of a bridge across the divide. Uh, if you focus more on the relationship first and then maybe, you know, tell some story about why an issue affects yourself. You know, a lot of the most powerful stories about, you know, take an issue that shifted uh, over the years, something like uh, gay marriage. Um, gay marriage has shifted not, and so, you know, it's not a, a logical argument that has shifted gay marriage. A lot of it's been, you know, seeing gay people in the world on TV um, as people, right? So you see these people as people and you're naturally inclined to want them to have good lives, right? You're, you're laughing at Ellen every day. And so you're like, I want her to have a good life. I, I, I'm not, you know, why would I be against her having, you know, a, a loving relationship uh, recognized by the law? Um, and so when you, when you start with the relationship first, now if, if Ellen had come out and, you know, her whole thing was about, um, you know, politics first, then, you know, I think that would have been a hard, it would have been hard for her to actually change people's minds. But, but having her develop a relationship first and then just sort of being who she is, I think, you know, that, that's what changes minds. So if people in their daily lives can focus on their relationships first and less so, less so on the policies that they may disagree about, uh, they'll see more progress. Doesn't it re relate to people's political parties or their values or their morals? Yeah, I mean, certainly there's a lot of preaching to the choir, and, and absolutely that has been an issue, right? You have sort of 
you know, the echo chambers of Fox News and MSNBC that reinforce the narratives that people already believe. So certainly it's true that there, there are some things that, you know, as far as like people's choice in media that enables, um, that sort of makes it harder for this to occur on a mass media basis. In some ways, you know, the, the fact that we have rising political polarization has been and can be attributed to the fact that we have so much more choice in media. And rather than all of us watching the, you know, the, net, the nightly news on ABC or CBS, we all watch sort of the, the cable news shows, which tend to, to skew more towards opinion and largely towards opinions that we already believe in. So, um, so that's left to us to maybe reproduce some of those common, uh, you know, reproduce the, the, the village square in our everyday lives. Ravier, it seems that most members of political parties are two things. They're self-righteous and they're often sticking with their own tribe. Are those evolutionary tendencies that kept us alive? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, being able to band together in groups has absolutely allowed us to compete other species. And so uh, it is natural for, you know, us to evolve the ability to cooperate well in social groups and for, um, you know, some people to evolve the ability to lead groups, the ability to be empathic with their group, to understand where the the moral buttons are that you can push in your group and to, ex- you know, to, to exhibit characteristics that sort of hold them out as moral exemplars of the group. And so insofar as, you know, moral emotions like disgust um, bind us together, you know, the, the, the leaders amongst us are going to be those who are able to tap into those emotions. Dr. Greyer, in this last minute, what do you want to repeat that's really important for our listeners to know about reducing political polarization? I would encourage our listeners to go out into the communities, meet someone from who from the other side of the aisle, someone they might disagree about an issue, and get to know them. Because uh, when you start to know people of the other side, you start to realize, you know, they're good people who believe what they believe for good reasons just as well as as we are. So, um, you know, the more that we can build relationships at the local level, the more that policies will get better at the national level. Ravi Iyer with civilpolitics.org. Hear more in Suzanne Kreider's entire interview with Ravi at peacetalksradio.com. And next up after a break, Dr. Jesse Fields, a physician who ran unsuccessfully as an independent one time to unseat veteran New York Congressman Charlie Rangel. What she's up to now after this break on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Suzanne Kreider. 
And today we're talking with people who have ideas about reducing political polarization, improving civility in our political discourse. And right now we turn to Dr. Jesse Fields. As we mentioned before the break, she's a physician who ran unsuccessfully as an independent one time to unseat veteran New York Congressman Charlie Rangel. That was a largely symbolic campaign, Dr. Fields admits, and she's followed it up by advocating for opening up primary elections so that anyone of any party affiliation can vote for any candidate. And she likes the idea that the top two candidates from a primary of any party would move on to a general election. She thinks that one admittedly unconventional step would go a long way to melting down some of the political polarization that she says the current party-only primaries foster. She talked with Suzanne Kreider. Most primaries are closed. Uh, I live in New York State, which is a closed primary state. All elections for state, for Congress, for president are closed. In New Mexico, all elections are closed. In Pennsylvania, all elections are closed. In Florida, in many other states, New Jersey and other states, this is a, a partisan closed primary. It goes by, by party. And it turns out that in these closed primary states, really a very small percentage of voters, even in the party, participate in the primary because the politicians learn to just reach out to the organized constituencies who are involved in uh, supporting them and who they know. They reach out to them. They make sure they come out and vote. They win the primary. And then it's a foregone conclusion in many states in which one party is dominant. Often, it certainly is the case in New York, the elected official doesn't have to even campaign after the primary because they're assured of winning the election because they've won the primary of the dominant party. And that uh, disenfranchises other voters, not only unaffiliated voters, but also members of other parties. It's a small percentage in a closed primary of the people who actually vote. So do you know the percentage of people who vote in the primary? Yes. Well, in New York, it's, um, it depends on the election and the year. Um, in the last mayoral election, it was um, something like 20 percent. It's usually not higher than 20 percent of the, the members of the, of the party who actually come out to vote. Many people don't vote in primaries, and there's not, I think, not enough outreach. Uh, and people, you know, uh, to, to citizens, to the public in general, about the importance of voting in the primary. It's thought of as, in some communities, as not the real election. And in open primary, what percentage of states have open primaries? In terms of the, the nonpartisan open primary, the top two nonpartisan open primary, that form of open primaries is in California and Washington state for statewide elections and congressional elections. Those are the main states. And then Nebraska has a form of, of nonpartisan top two open primaries for state elections, for state legislative elections, and that is pretty much it. Other states, the most common election that we see open primaries in, the party-oriented open primaries where someone can choose to vote in either the Democratic or Republican primaries without being a member of the party, is in presidential elections. So there's about 23 states in 2016, and this changes from presidential election to presidential election. Every four years it somewhat changes. Some are more open than others. Some only allow unaffiliated voters to vote. And some, like New Hampshire, you have to come to the primary and join a party, pick a party to join, and then you can vote in that party's primary. And then you have to go through some other process to actually become an unaffiliated voter. 
and they only allow in, in New, New Hampshire and others and many other states, they only allow unaffiliated voters, not people who are not, you know, who are registered in other parties to vote. There are so many options. There's closed, there's open, there's mixed. Dr. Fields, how do closed primaries make it more difficult? I'm guessing it's more difficult for the voters and also the officials to cross party lines and kind of work things out. So in this kind of closed primary system, you don't have an opportunity to bring different points of view together. You don't have an opportunity to bring together people who are registered in different parties, independents, Democrats, Republicans, third-party members, unaffiliated voters. You're not able to really build broad-based coalitions that are organized around different kinds of issues and can bring people together across party lines. And the elected officials are more beholden to the party boss. So there's this term in politics called being primaried. People on the so-called right and people on the so-called left Elected officials are concerned that if they step too far out of their party partisan box, that they may be primary, that somebody may run against them in their primary, and if they lose their primary, then they've, they've lost their public office, uh, so they've lost the election. So that, that is often something that elected officials worry about. If they don't get the support of the party bosses, then they may not get a good committee assignment. They may be ostracized in the legislature. And so it's a way of controlling the elected officials. And for me, I think the, the fundamental issue is that many, many voters are excluded by closed primaries. So in the presidential election, in the primaries, there were 26 million people around the country who were not able to participate, most of them unaffiliated voters. They had no say in determining who was the winner of those primaries. Jesse Fields, talk about how open primaries would reduce polarization. Yeah, this is something that I I feel very strongly about uh, personally as an African-American woman and as someone who works in the Harlem community. uh, I've been involved in efforts to bring together people, you know, across the political divides and across social divides and racial divides. And the great thing about open primaries, particularly the top two open primaries, but even in the party-oriented open primaries where parties allow others or not registered in their party to vote, you have the opportunity to build coalitions. And uh, for instance, around uh, something like uh, increasing the minimum wage or addressing uh, problem, social problems of education, which people across the board, I think, care about. And also, you, you can move away from the demonization of people who are not members of your party. If you if you deal with elected officials or you go to party events, you find that the way that they speak about others, non-party members or people who are members of the opposite party, is fairly negative and, and somewhat antagonistic and hostile and as if we would never associate with those people. But um, open primaries gives you a structural foundation to begin to bring people together. I don't believe it's a panacea and will solve all of our problems around polarization and, and government dysfunction and the problems in our political process. But I, but I do believe very strongly that it gives us a structure that supports having a context to then bring people together in unusual ways. Yes. And how also would it affect the actual um, campaigning? It means that the candidates who are running for office have to reach beyond their party borders. 
so well, some examples in California, which by initiative passed top two open primaries in 2010, and after the first election in California that was an open primaries, nonpartisan elections was in 2012. And in those elections, for the first time, uh, uh, incumbents lost. There were 10 incumbents who lost election for the first time. That hadn't happened uh, in, in 10 years in California under the previous system. Democratic candidates had to reach out beyond the Democratic Party. So the incumbent Democrat in a state legislative race in 2012 in California actually ended up losing the election, and he had been in office for 40 years and had never faced a competitive election. Uh, the, the issue was that he only reached out to members of the Democratic Party, and he actually called his opponent not a real Democrat because uh, that candidate was reaching out to Republicans and independents as well as Democrats. And the candidate who reached out more broadly won the election and beat the 40-year incumbent. So it does require campaigning in a broader fashion than the elected officials are used to, and it makes the elections much more competitive. Dr. Fields, a person might say, yeah, open primaries, that's a great idea that will never happen. What would you say to that person? Well, I'd say that um, it is absolutely an, an uphill battle to win open primaries. It's not easy, but there are movements in different states for open primaries. So it's it usually comes into law by virtue of citizen initiatives that are put on the ballot and ordinary voters pass it. That's, that's how it became the law in California and in Washington state. And there are initiatives on the ballot in other states. The other phenomenon that's going on around the country that I think offers a, a hopeful sign is the fact that more and more Americans are leaving the Democratic and Republican parties. 43% of the country is now independent. More and more voters are saying, don't put me into a box. I don't want to be forced to vote uh, for a party candidate. I want to vote for, for the best person, not for the party. And it's independents who are very diverse, that independents are across the political spectrum uh, and come together around support for, for revitalizing our democracy, for opening up the process, for the people having more power than the parties. And I think that's a very hopeful sign. Independents are the most excluded by closed primaries, and they're the ones who support opening up the process much more, and they're becoming a majority of, of, of Americans. Dr. Fields, this has been so helpful. My last question is, is there anything else you want to say that you haven't said yet about open primaries or reducing polarization. Dr. Fields, you have run for public office as an independent candidate. Yes, I have. What was your experience as an independent candidate? Well, thanks for asking that question, um, giving me a chance to talk about that. I, um, I'm a physician, uh, I'm not a politician, and I ran as a doctor. My experience running as an independent was really, I, I enjoyed reaching out and to, to all different communities and uh, talking to people. And I particularly enjoyed the experience of learning about people's lives uh, and different points of view, and that I let that really inform my candidacy. Uh, my platform was really focused on political reform, some of the things that we've talked about, and also the need for citizens to be involved uh, in, in their government and in, in committees and and to really participate 
and the, the need for diversity, for bringing different people together, people with innovative ideas. I also uh, am on the board of directors of nonprofit organizations like you know, the All-Stars Project. We work with young people. We're doing very innovative after-school uh, programs, and there's also work being done with trying to build positive police community relations that don't get a lot of attention because they're not really supported by, by political parties. They're, they're completely outside of those arenas. But I think citizens can come together. My, my experience, when I ran, I explicitly said that I was not going to win the election. I ran for Congress in 2002 against Congressman Charles Rangel, which is a district that is a closed primary. And, you know, once the Democrat wins the primary, they don't have to campaign. There's only been two elected officials since... Adam Clayton Powell, since that Harlem Congressional District was created in the 1940s, there's only been two people who've been in that seat, Adam Clayton Powell and Congressman Rangel. That's a, an example of how uh, political disenfranchisement really affects the communities. I work as a physician. I, frankly, have done a lot of work in poor urban communities and the issues of social isolation, of um, the lack of really um, effective education and, and human development. I see that every day. Um, and I wanted to impact on that. So I talked about those issues uh, in my campaign. And I ran as a doctor, not a politician. And I said I wasn't going to win. I knew I couldn't possibly win as a grassroots candidate running against someone who'd been in office for 35 years. Um, but that kind of frankness we don't see uh, in elections. People are just running to win to put their party in power, to, to win in office. But I think we have to put the people and the concerns of our communities and our country ahead of partisan interests. And that's fundamentally why I'm involved in, in electoral reform, is because I, I want to see much more of that in, in, our, in, our, in our process, in our political process. And I really believe that democracy can work and that we can make it work much, much better. Well, I think that, yes, the, the thing that I wanted to say was to inspire everyone. I think that I would like to let people know that there are other things going on in the country. There are grassroots movements, there are efforts in, in states around the country to bring people together, to open up our political process. And I would like uh, to say that uh, the strength of our democracy and the, the future of our democracy is not determined by this one election we can still go forward and revitalize it and bring people together and get, you know, go beyond this divisiveness that we're seeing. And really, I think it's making a number of people sort of cynical and not want to participate. However, I would like to be a voice of inspiration that much more is going on. You don't have to just look at the presidential election. Look at what's going on locally in these different states and the movements of the American people to, to come together, which I I believe in very strongly. You can hear more with Jesse Fields about the open primaries movement at our website. Complete interviews with her and our other guests at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can explore all the programs in our series going back to 2002. You can hear them, read transcripts, find other links, even donate to support Peace Talks Radio. Editing assistance this time from Joshua Doffer Johnson. I'm Paul Ingalls for Suzanne Kreider. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm-hmm.